0: Welcome
1: to a very special social distancing season of Consumed, the podcast about life and flavor across California, and especially at its heart, the Central Coast. I'm Jamie Lewis. Every quarter, I publish 10 conversations I've had with eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, but this season is a little different for obvious reasons. To keep things healthy and safe, I'm conducting interviews via Zoom. Thanks for bearing with me in this new, uncharted territory. Before we get started, I have to tell you about a recent conversation I had with my friend, James Onaveros. He's the farmer and owner of Ranchos de Onaveros and Native Nine Wines in the Santa Maria Valley, and I interviewed him in my first season. Anyway, we were talking about COVID and how much it's affecting everything in the hospitality industry, and then I said, yeah, I question whether or not I should even bother doing another season of Consumed right now, given how scary and difficult everything is. James stopped me right there and said, no, Jamie, we need these conversations now more than ever. James is a born storyteller, so I get why he thinks stories matter. But when he said he wanted to sponsor the next season of Consumed, I knew he really meant it. We need stories about our experiences, how we fell in love with food or wine or brewing or baking, and we need it right now, when so many of us have to put our passions on the back burner just to survive. So, I'm letting James and Ranchos de Anaveros help me, and I fully intend to help him. Find his exquisite Pinot Noir and Chardonnay wines at ranchosdeaniveros.com. And check out his new restaurant, The Station in Los Alamos, where you can get takeout on the weekends. Find The Station at thestationlosalamos.com. And as always, Consumed is sponsored by the awesome people at Slow Life Magazine. In preparing for their first post-coronavirus issue, I've been so impressed by how resilient they are and how focused they are on the local community. I cover food for Slow Life, so it's been tricky finding a good way to write about restaurants without stressing them out. But the Slow Life editor suggested I write about farm boxes and CSAs, which is a brilliant idea while those services are going bananas with growth. The point is Slow Life is a source of community and calm right now when we're all separated and anxiety is running maybe a little high. Look for a copy in your mailbox every other month. And if you're not already in the know, subscribe at slowlifemagazine.com. It's no exaggeration to say that Jim Clendenon is one of the most important people in American wine. He established Obon Bon Climat winery with his then-partner Adam Tolmac in Santa Maria, California, in 1982, after traveling far and wide across Europe and Africa. But it all started in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, where Jim grew up, pushed academically by his parents, fluent in French, and inspired by his grandmother's big-hearted hospitality. This was the fertile ground for his tremendous winemaking career as a pioneer of Santa Maria Valley wine, as well as that of California and the New World. He has worked three harvests in one year, a crazy undertaking, but he says it's the underground moments that have been his best education, like tasting through 30 barrels of the same wine to sharpen his palate. His wines have landed on Robert Parker's list of the world's best wines, and Jim has been named Los Angeles Times Winemaker of the Year, Food and Wine Magazine's Winemaker of the Year, and the German wine magazine Wein Gourmet's Winemaker of the World. He is also on the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America. But talking with Jim, you would never know it, which is to his credit. Here we discussed how his grandmother supported her family, the beauty and rarity of a good business partnership, and how we are name buddies now. Also, Jim spoke with me from his winery in Santa Maria, and because winemaking doesn't stop, there are some ambient noises that make it into the tape. But no matter. Hopefully, it's not too distracting. Okay, here's my talk with Jim Clendenin. Jim, thank you for doing this. I know that this is such an odd time to be getting together, per se, but you're doing it, and I appreciate it. I know a lot about you as much as you know, any um, wine lover with a Google uh, search bar in front of them knows about you, but I'm curious. I mean, tell all the listeners that I have, um, where did you grow up? What was growing up like for you?
2: You know, I I grew up uh, just outside of Akron, Ohio, in a small town called Cuyahoga Falls. And it was the perfect environment for me to grow up in. It was kind of one of the um, American middle-class wannabe places. Uh, both my uh, parents were born in the Monongahela Valley, in uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. First members of the family to uh, to go to college. My, and my dad went to uh, Carnegie Tech at the time, which became Carnegie Mellon. My mom went to University of Pittsburgh. Pitt, and, uh, and then my dad actually thought it was social climbing to move to Akron, Ohio. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure that was social climbing. But he became a career worker for Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, and it really was middle class America training 101, where you start off at the bottom, you keep staying with the same company over and over again, you get promotions, you do better, you buy every every six years, you buy a different house. And uh, what I loved about it was it's a place that respected achievement. It was a place that had all of its educational programs organized in such a way that if you achieve or overachieve, then they promoted you, and they allowed you to achieve more. And uh, and, and for me, that was what I needed. I started school a year early. I got promoted a year. Uh, all all I meant basically was that I was a uh, really short, uh, undeveloped, uh, non-athletic nerd that uh, was... Uh, was raised in an academic environment that made me uh, find other things that I liked. Mm.
1: So you had the right kind of um, the fertile ground to be who you are, to fe- to be free to be who you are. Absolutely. Yeah. And what did mom do?
2: Uh, mom was a teacher. And when the kids were born, my father wouldn't let her teach. And so she ended up uh, uh, taking care of the three kids and teaching us really well, which was the kind of uh, adjunct to uh, the education we were getting in school. You know, I was taking French as a as, as a, uh, an eight-year-old in my school where um, I was done with French by the time I moved to California, and I was done with everything. I mean, I moved to California. I'd already taken all the math you can do, all, everything. All I had to do was take California history and, and P.E. <laughs> And that was it. And PE was my worst subject, but I got better. Yeah. And uh, and California history was just kind of like, okay. Yeah.
1: It's funny though, because we Californians take our history very seriously, I think. But we don't. We are kind of myopic. I think sometimes we believe that everybody has the same understanding of California history, when really it's just us.
2: Well, you know, I took uh, Ohio history, and that's the only reason I had to take California history because I came out of my, of my sophomore year. In, uh, in high school. So I had completed most everything, but because I started school so early and was promoted, when I was a sophomore, I was 14, and I, as a sophomore in California, you have to take driver's ed. And I was scared shitless behind the wheel, especially on California freeways, oh. driving sticks and stuff. They put me behind the wheel, and I'm just kind of going, I mean, maybe the most intimidating, challenging, and difficult part of my life Right there then as a, as a sophomore in, in Whittier, in uh, oh, yeah. the, the endless suburbs.
1: Oh my gosh, the endless suburbs, it's so true. Redlands, all out in there, yeah. Well, so you say that you, you came out to California at 14. Is that what I'm hearing you say?
2: Uh, I came out to California just about 14. It might have been a little bit later. I'm, I'm often off on these kind of dates, but my real thing that I talk about coming out for I often say I was 16, and that would have been, 16 would have been 19, no, so yeah, no, I, I came out when I was 14, yeah, mm. absolutely, and even so though I've said 16 many times.
1: <laughs> so we're clearing that up, fake news. Did you uh, did you start college right away? Is that why you came out?
2: No, I, I came out to do my sophomore year in high school. My father transferred himself, but it was apparent he was not going to be the chairman of the board or a vice president or anything that would get him more money and force him to stay in Akron, mm. he uh, transferred himself out in his own division of international tire sales uh, to Los Angeles.
0: Mm. Okay. So okay. I
2: thought he was a real asshole. My um, older sister was a senior in high school. And so she had done everything up to her senior year with all the same people uh, for that long period of time and so when she came out to California she was absolutely lost hmm. and pretty depressed about the whole thing it took me at least two years to figure out my father was a genius and then I left so it was okay
1: yeah and did you always know that you wanted to go to UCSB
2: you know I didn't but uh, when, when you live in the endless suburbs where you're spending more times waiting for your stoplights to change with left turns right turns I mean, it's unbelievable, those giant intersections all over Orange County and uh, in the suburbs to where you're you're like seven minutes sitting there. I hope the music's good is all I'm going to tell you. But um, it it was just the wrong environment for me in a lot of ways. I think the way I described it at the time to my friends in Ohio was beached out, bleached out, and banal.
1: Oh, my gosh. Is there a part of you, that Midwestern part of you, does that come out sometimes still?
2: It does. You know, I, I, I sell a lot of wine in the Midwest. It's surprising how many people I've reconnected with, even though I never, I went to only middle school with them. And so our middle school was 7th grade, 8th grade, and ninth grade. And then they all went off to Coggle Falls High School, and, and I moved out to California. And so a lot of people that I remember very well don't remember me at all because I was gone for so long, but there's every year something happens. You know, I sold a, a charitable, uh, benefacting package for the Akron Museum of Art mm-hmm. and, uh, guy that bought it was a guy I walked to school with every day and he had no idea. He only bought it for a bon climat. He didn't buy it for Jamie Clendenin because that was, oh. that was my, Oh yeah. That was my name until I was, uh, it, it, it in well into middle school, I think by, by the time I had the ninth grade, I think I tried to bury that and become Jim for a combination of reasons. The little girl that lived across the street from my grandparents in in Pennsylvania, my grandmother was most important influence in my life. Hmm. Her name was Jamie, and so people started giving me all kinds of crap for having yeah, I mean, Jamie as a name. I always tell people that it had Jamie Rivers, the All Pro linebacker for the Baltimore Colts, and he'd been born a couple of years earlier, and he was the kind of guy that if you made fun of his name, he'd cave your chest and your face in at the same time. <laughs> then I could have kind of stood up for it, but you know, it, was, it was classic. I'm now Jim Clendenin in the ninth grade, and finally uh, people calling me at my house, which they had never really done before, and uh, every time my sisters wouldn't put their hand over the receiver, they go... Jamie (laughs) and then I'd get a whole extra week of shit
1: oh that's so funny but now we could be Jamie buddies I mean nobody else has to know
2: I just laughed because we thought uh, that uh, we thought I thought you were a male sure and I thought you had a Latino background
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've had so many people you know they meet me and they say what were your parents doing like what was happening for you And I still, my mom just still says, I really liked it. I liked the way it was spelled. But yeah, I get that a lot. Did you, when you um, were growing up, what was a meal like at your table?
2: Well, you know, my mom was, was, was an okay cook. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. My, 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 her mother was an incredible cook and an incredibly special person. And for whatever reasons, my mother didn't, uh, she didn't adopt a lot of that. She was pretty much a uh, uh, Chinese noodle dish out of a Chef Boyardee can, mm-hmm. kind of a cook. And, you know, when she was really pulling out all the stops, she made a beef stew inside uh pastry that she made. And it wasn't horrible, but it was all kind of ruined by the ketchup that was put on yeah. by my father and, and, the, and the rest of my family. But her mother was the kind of woman that cooked for the entire neighborhood. Mm. She was a saint, and she was married to my namesake, one of the worst sinners on the planet. And uh, he was a special guy. He and I spent a large amount of time together. He took up golf late in his life so he could play golf with me when I lived back in the Midwest, moved out to California at the, at the end of his life. But he was completely supported in his life by the... And, incredible generosity of, uh, of his wife and so her, the specialties that she made were I remember when I finally after uh, being in Europe came home and, and cooked her uh, pasta and she started picking all the things out that I left in there because when she made me you know spaghetti I would just go through it and if it was a big piece of onion I'd pick it and throw it out big piece of tomato I'd pick it and throw it out and she never used a fresh herb in her life. And that was her biggest complaint that I had. The fresh herbs had just way too much flavor. And I'm yeah. going, Grandma, that's the only way they eat in Italy. They would never use anything else except fresh herbs. And she's like, and what she is this horse of-
1: food? What is this rabbit exactly. food? Exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Get, get, uh, get this out of here. But some of the scariest moments I had when I was growing up were um, delivering meals to the um, – Elderly single women in the neighborhood who didn't cook for themselves. And, you know, those houses are scary. They're dark. You know, if I would have heard one single bad theme music thing come up, I wouldn't have gone into that basement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would have run the other way. And, uh, but I brought them in and I brought them their food. And it took me a lot of years to understand just how great she was for her neighborhood. The kind of woman that when my grandfather had financial problems she started doing driver's education Mm. she started taking in borders she started uh, um, living life in the community the way people ought to live life in the community Mm. I'll give you a really quick story because it's really important I'd like to have it uh, documented Um, one day there's a knock on the door in in the front the house they lived in because my grandfather inherited it was huge five bedrooms upstairs a whole attic above for other people to sleep in I mean it was just a huge house on Main Street in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. And this guy knocks on the door and uh, my grandma opens the door. She sees a total stranger in the front porch and he goes, hello, my name is, is, and uh, I am looking for a place to rent. And uh, she said, why are you here? Uh, everyone says he was the only generous person in the area. This was right at the end of World War II. Wow. And there was a period of time when everything was kind of all about the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, meaning Germans. Nobody could deal with. Well, I mean, Pennsylvania has a huge German population, but nobody would admit they were German. They were all Dutch. And this guy goes, my name is Kemphausen. And he wanted a room and uh, my grandmother talks to him for a while and says I can rent you a room that would be great and she goes what's your first name and he goes Adolf and she goes well tomorrow your name will be Alfred (laughs) (laughs) but you can live with us and he lived there all the way through the end of his life and uh, so when I was staying in the house when our family would go back and visit many years later you know, I was born in 53. And so you can figure out the time he was already there for probably six years before I was born. And then, you know, four or five years that I lived and then he died. And when he died, he left. Turned out he was tremendously wealthy. And he left not his estate, but the interest earned from his estate to my grandmother, because she took care of him. And that amount of money changed their lives. So instead of Hanging around in the winter in uh, Monongahela, Pennsylvania, living on my grandfather's. Uh, uh, I, I, he, he was a very interesting guy for things that he did, mm. but he ended up um, losing everything. He had three uh, Wimpy's hamburger chain okay. restaurants prior to uh, uh, McDonald's ever existing. He could have been powerful and wealthy, but he was a gambler and he was a, mm. you know, like DeFi. So he uh, got to go down to Florida in the wintertime and not just live on his retirement pension because when he lost everything else that he was doing, and he lost it all, he went in the coal mines. He went in the coal mines at uh, 40, and he had to work 25 years to get a pension, and he never missed a day. And so he had some redeeming uh, capacity, too, for himself, but it was my grandmother and her sainthood that that had things like that come into the family. Now, did I have any benefit of that? Yes. My grandfather would just revel at the fact that he could get first baseline seats for the Pittsburgh Pirates when they were the best team in baseball by a long way. And I would sit there with him and think my grandfather was a really important guy.
1: That's so crazy. And I love, I love these women that do that kind of thing. There are a lot of, uh, stories like that, but the fact that she came out on top with that is pretty beautiful. Do you? Is there a quality of hers that's in you like that? Do you take people in, or do you feed people? I mean, I know your hospitality, right?
2: Famous hospitality, but mostly she taught me everything. She taught me how to clip coupons. She taught me how to shop. She was a depression survivor and thriver. She taught me uh, all about quality of food. Didn't teach me about fresh herbs, that's for sure. <laughs> But she taught me about um, local generosity, and for a long time, I couldn't figure out why I did so much charitable work. I raise a lot of money for charity, Mm -hmm. 10, 20 more auctions a year that I support. And wine itself can turn itself into a lot of money for charities, so I like that. I don't give a lot of money, but I I don't not give money either. But the things that we do have been very, very, very large scale. And for a long time, I thought it was like a boomer bullshit thing that um, I felt that I owed the world something. Uh, For a long period of time, I used to tell people I must have been Vlad the Impaler or or, uh, uh, Attila the Hun in a previous life because I want to do a lot of work for charity. And now I kind of realize it was probably the table being set by my grandmother when I think about
1: it. Yep. And that stuff is generational. It's it's a long lead, I think, you know, the things that we do now, our own children, their children, it matters, yeah, and we all benefit. Uh, you did go to UCSB. I know that you at least started in the law. Is that right?
2: I started in philosophy.
1: Oh, you did? Okay.
2: And, and, and um, uh, I, I, I segued, for a combination of reasons, into a degree that didn't exist when I started, and, and that, that, that became... Uh, a combination of philosophy, sociology, political science Mm. with some great, great old professors. The great thing about UCSB was uh, when people wanted to retire, they wanted to retire to Santa Barbara. Mm. And so the guys that wrote these incredible textbooks were the core instructors in in my major. And it was good. I was the first graduate in pre-law from UCSB. I had to write a thesis, which I never thought I had to write, and I actually, in, in a time of incredible decadence, a lot of things going on, I managed to put together a 100-page thesis and got a lot of uh, kudos from the combination of the major people that uh, took care of it. The only reason I did it was because, you know, I'm, I'm a generation older than you, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the minimum, maybe I'm two generations older than you. I don't know. I
1: don't but even I mean, want to count.
2: <laughs> the um, most important thing for me Uh, during that period of time was if you stayed in school longer than your parents, like my parents were easy, nobody in their family had had, uh, gotten a college education. So I was minimum planning on getting a college education, but if you stayed in school for a few more years longer than that, then you could become a lawyer, you could Hmm. become a doctor, you could become a a psychologist. And, And that was kind of the way the whole thing was structured. It wasn't whether you liked school or not, whether you did well in school. I did very well in school, but it was just a tough period. You know, I ended up getting my degree after taking my uh, year and a half off uh, before my junior year and living in Europe with my girlfriend. I uh, graduated in 76 and I'd gotten through the late 60s, I'd gotten through the early 70s. but it really wasn't a period of time when there was a lot of respect for authority or respect for education. And so uh, after I graduated I went back to work for uh, a year in my father's old company Firestone Tire and River Company selling tires and installing fraudulently expensive brakes and doing all the things that tire companies do to this day and earned enough money so that I, I could go back my my older sister who was very 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 important in my life at that point uh was in the peace corps in zaire of all places so i, I went uh went back to europe for a short period of time and went down to africa and i ended up traveling there for six months and reflecting on what I really wanted to do with my life. And what I didn't want to do is go back to university, and graduate as a lawyer and, uh, turned out to be a great decision. I have no regrets about that decision. That's yeah. sure. I have and very h- few regrets about life. But.
1: Did you, had you already had, I mean, had you already had a glass of wine in France and had kind of an aha moment before that happened?
2: Endlessly. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it became, it became my life. And, uh, uh, it was just funny because I had to come back. I turned 21 living in Bordeaux, and uh, my life became centered around food and wine. I had a Volkswagen camper that I bought from a UCLA student that was living in, uh, in Bordeaux, and she didn't want to have it anymore. And it turned out to pose a lot of problems, but we solved those problems. It was never registered properly, you know, but anyway, we got it. We got it registered, and I lived in it for uh, – 14 months went to 18 countries and as, as, as far abroad as the border of Morocco in the south uh, to to uh, you know back all through Italy and Greece and then I went to uh, Egypt which is crazy parked the car in a in a airport parking lot went down for two weeks there went all across Turkey you know had some because those places were cheap yeah. Scottish had no money cheap my girlfriend cheaper than i was so it was a uh, it was a good thing and um, we went up to germany for oktoberfest and it was so expensive we left after a short period of time went to england we loved england but she had some connections there from doing a junior year abroad in high school that she did and so we went there and had a really good time it's still so expensive compared to you know where we had been in the south but when i was there the first thing I discovered was wine, and the wine that I discovered was because we had a couple of friends in the town of Bordeaux who were British, and they were working for the uh, big negotiation firms like Dort Frere, and they got a bottle of wine for 40 cents, and you know, that was right in my drinking, drinking window. <laughs> right <laughs> on So we, we had so much fun, and it was the kind of thing where I loved to cook even then. And so I would help plan the meals for parties. And it was just this cosmic sort of um, coinciding of very attractive young French women who wanted to learn English and um, English guys who had wine and American guys who had time on their hands. You know, I was in Bordeaux where the University of California, my school, UCSB, had their um, education program abroad. And I had a bunch of friends that uh lived in the dorms, and so I would pull into a parking behind the dorm and I'd run a an extension cord into their power plant and uh, and then just hang out until they kicked me out and uh We had a relationship with the basketball program that was there. It was a third division professional team and they had a uh, an American uh from the University of Washington who was the center. And they had a bunch of French guys that like to shoot, and that just doesn't work out. So I came in and tried out with them for a short period of time, and uh, they threw the ball to me, and I immediately threw the ball to the six foot nine uh, center from the University of Washington, and he looked. And after they all we had a practice, and they didn't need me because they didn't think I was doing anything because I wasn't shooting. And the uh, Louis, the, the center, said. We keep him. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. It was just, it was a wonderful time in my life. We went from there to Spain and Portugal and then from there to, to Morocco and met interesting, wonderful people all the way along and everywhere we went, especially in Spain, where I, I hadn't discovered the idea. In France, they always had these signs that said, Vin en craque, Bulk wine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who would buy bulk wine? You know, I, I, I only discovered that you could buy bottles of wine. Bottles of wine were a little too expensive to do on a daily basis, but in Spain, you go to a wine shop, and the wine shop had all of these tanks on the walls behind, and you could get a, uh, a bottle, a liter and a half of rosé for a dollar, and it was delicious, dry, wonderful, and so we began to have you know, artichokes and ham cooked together in a way that I read that they cooked them in Spain, and, and, a, and a beautiful bottle of rosé along with it the first day that i walked in one of these places i said i want to buy a a bottle of wine and they said yes and i said no i I want to buy a bottle of wine because my girlfriend's spanish was really good my french was really good and her german was pretty good so we did pretty damn well going across through uh through europe and they said no we cannot sell it to you and i'm going I'm old enough, I turned 21, what are you talking about? And they're going, oh, you could drink at 18 here. You could drink at 16 here. We don't care. But you don't have a bottle. Got it. You
1: can't like, have a bottle.
2: Because there isn't a bottle. So we went yeah. out and bought a big bottle at, a, at a, a grocery store. We'd bring it in and we'd give it to them. And they'd uh, fill it up. And then they would take this little plastic uh, stopper that was in there and go, don't lose this. <laughs> That's all that it was, you know. For a long time, we thought they were prejudiced. but now they just had their they had their ways. Yeah. I uh, combination of the uh, parties in Bordeaux and and the uh, daily life, daily consumption with my little kitchen I had there, uh, wine just became a very important part of my
1: life. Hmm. It, I might be jumping around too much, but you did work harvest in Burgundy at least once, right?
2: I, I did, but that was on the. uh third generation of, of, of me going in so I went 73 74 turned uh, my, my birthday's in January so in, in January 74 I turned 21 mm-hmm. and then I did the trip with Sarah Molden my uh, my high school and college girlfriend and then I went back in 77 with Sarah but by that time she'd moved moved on from me so I we went to Africa together and we had some wonderful wonderful experiences but I realized that uh Unfortunately, I worked hard, but my, that relationship was n- not going to be able to continue.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, my sister and I then traveled. She went elsewhere. Sarah did. And my sister and I went through West Africa. Uh, she was a French teacher, and her French was really good. and My French was really good. And so we traveled in, in uh, Western French-speaking Africa and didn't speak a lot of English. Had a lot of fun
0: doing yeah. that. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and then I went home sort of dragging hose for Zaka Mesa, which I know that you, you were talking about in, in your uh, interrogatories to, to me. And, and then I um, went back in 81. And 81 was the year that I realized I couldn't really learn anything more in America. I learned all I could learn at Zaka Mesa. And I had wonderful highs and I had horrible lows. You know, I, I, I discovered what it was like Working for the first time, where I wasn't the superstar, I wasn't the prized employee that had Firestone, uh, I was immediately promoted from salesperson to store manager and that, that kind of thing, just because of the focus that I had compared to the other people I was working with. And so, it, it was just it was a situation where at Jacan Mesa they promised me the world, and then never gave me the world and did just the opposite mm-hmm. promoted me to assistant winemaker um, right before the harvest and so instead of being paid 275 an hour, which is what I was being paid, um, by the time they gave me a salary in the hours that I worked, I was working 105 hours a week during the harvest because I wanted to because I absolutely loved it and then all of a sudden I get my first paycheck and I worked this 105 hours but, I, but I'm getting what, what ended up being the equivalent of a dollar twenty an hour so right. 275 and you know I just everybody knew that they're all looking at me and going why would you why, why would you agree to go on salary before it and I'm going I thought they liked me <laughs> yeah I had no idea and so some of the things weren't the best there but a lot of the things were I learned I, I learned a lot very quickly then mm-hmm. and so by the time I finished the uh, 80 harvest so I worked 78 79 at 80 harvest at Zaka Mesa. I knew I had to go elsewhere, so I went to Australia, mm-hmm. and I worked two vintages in Australia in, in a very hot climate and a moderate climate, and then I wrapped up that year just because of the difference in timing of Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere winemaking. Uh, I ended up in, in Burgundy working for uh, the domain Duke de Magenta after I'd done a, a stage training program with uh, Gerard Potel at Claude La store.
1: That feels like yeah. whiplash a bit to me, going from Australia Australia hot climate, moderate climate, to Burgundy, and and all within the span of 18 months, right?
0: Oh, in, in the span of uh, 12, 12 months.
1: 12 months, okay. Yeah. How did those nope. experiences differ?
2: Well, you know, they totally differ in, you know, uh, w- what I like to say is that working at Zaca Meza, they taught me how to turn a pump on, because Americans like to pump wine, they like to process wine, and looking around my winery here right now and thinking, we like bumps, it's okay. But I went to Australia and they just gave me a box full of pieces of metal and, and they taught me how to make a pump. Which
0: oh, wow. so is really cool. Yeah. The
2: Australians are incredible in what they can create in a very isolated environment, mm-hmm. but they didn't know anything about wine style. They didn't know anything about wine quality. And so when I came in with my limited knowledge, it was easy to go to the head of the class with this kind of stuff. I will tell you this, and if you bring it up to any Australian ever, they'll say, ah, he's so full of shit. 1981, when I worked there, I was the second person in Australia to barrel ferment Chardonnay. Really? They hadn't been to Burgundy. They didn't know anything about barrel fermentation. There was uh, one guy in in the Hunter Valley that barrel fermented stuff. Uh, Murray Tyrrell, and nobody else there was no Chardonnay planted down in the Mornington Peninsula there was nothing around Victoria in in the Goldburn Valley or any place and uh, then it got planted and then people didn't know how to make wine so when I worked in the Hunter Valley I was just uh, you know working all night long and having flies fly into my eyes in the morning when I was walking to work and I mean it's a funny place hot and dry and horrible in some ways and you know <laughs> warm and friendly and and convivial yeah. and I, and I got a lifetime of stories being there for sure you know yeah. as soon as you'd worked and worked and worked and worked and worked they finally gave you one day off and often it was one day in 14 it was you didn't get a lot of days off then the uh, my co-workers if they had a time off at the same time would say oh great let's go out and get drunk so healthy. Go, can, I, can I just sleep for 24 <laughs> hours? It would be a lot better for me. Uh, anyway, the, the, uh, the experience was, was pretty wonderful. And because of what I knew from working in Zaka Mesa and because of what I knew from uh, my little period of time in the Hunter Valley, when I went down to uh, the Goulburn Valley, which is very close to Melbourne, cooler, the whole hunter harvest was done. And I got to start and carry all the way through. I got hired by somebody whose winemaker had just left them, and they didn't have a winemaker on the team. So I got to be the de facto winemaker. So I went crazy. That was your first, right? Your first? Say what?
1: It Was that your first? Your first at the helm?
2: Absolutely. So I made barrel fermented diverts from here. I made late harvest, heavily betrited Sauvignon Blanc and nobody was making dessert wines like that. They were making fortified wines yeah. And in uh, Australia, but they weren't making wines like that. And then I made a blend of Malbec, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and Cabernet Sauvignon that uh, came within 0.1 points of winning the Jimmy Watson Trophy, which is the most important show judging in, uh, in Australia. And I was supposed to be coming back and working for them the following year. I was going to do six months in California and six months in Australia. And I uh, later on wrote a magazine article that said I did come back and I made great wines and they should go. People should go out and buy them. And I'm kind of going, <laughs> but I didn't.
1: <laughs> oh, but you did. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. You. I, I'm listening to you talk and thinking about. Uh, Winemakers now, especially, you know, I I always marvel at, you know, Cal Poly University, Davis, students go in to a winemaking, wine and vit program, you know, three years before they're even legal to drink, they have to declare that they're going to be working in wine and vit. Um, And then there's this very... I don't want to say formulaic, but there's a very clear path for them to work a harvest their junior year, work another harvest. You know, you have to go to the Antipodes and then you have to go Northern Hemisphere. And, um, and so, you know, you meet pretty much any winemaker around here has done, they've stashed somewhere, they've done a harvest somewhere else. For you, that wasn't happening with a lot of Californians, well, with a lot of Californians at all, but especially on the Central Coast.
2: It was not. And um, when I went across and worked in France, it was amazing because I realized that nothing that we were doing in California emulated on any level what was going on in Burgundy. And yet I was talking to people who would uh, tell me, oh, we we bank wine in a totally Burgundian fashion. Then they would have these wonderful questions like, so when you put your wine back into your open-top tank, And you put plastic over the top and you gas it is it normal to have this four or five inch surface growth happen and i'm going well no one would ever go back into an open top tank that they'd fermented in They would go into a barrel Mm -hmm. they would top the barrel and there wouldn't be any surface growth on that but they had all been on trips many of them uh guided and and i'm not going to say anything negative about the man because there's nothing to say that's negative about him except that he was a smoker but Andre Chelichev would go over there, but his French wasn't good, and they would have translators, and they would be looking and watching and trying to hear and trying to understand with the fact that I spoke French. I mean, if I asked them about filtering, if I asked them about finding, if I asked them why they did this and why they did that, I came back with a pretty clear idea. And I also saw that the quality of the uh, weather during harvest in Burgundy especially in the 80s, a very difficult uh, uh, period of time. 70s were the worst. I mean, my God, you know, you can find one and a half good vintages in the entire decade, mm-hmm. and the uh, Burgundians were still banging the wine out and trying to sell it for good money. But it was really, really, really difficult. I drank a lot of 70s wines when I went over to work in 81 because they couldn't sell them, so they said, uh-huh. ah, I'll just let Jim drink of it. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> and, they,
1: and you were probably more than happy to do that.
2: More than happy. Yeah more than happy and, and I think the ability to translate what their ideas were when I came back and we came back myself and my partner at the time Adam Tolmach mm-hmm. from Ojai Vineyards and Adam's a great winemaker and um, we had some personal issues about how fast the company should grow how far it should grow what it should be and uh, we, we resolved all those problems now good. we're really good friends and, and I'm I'm really proud of that because he's a really good guy and a really good winemaker. But uh, he joined me when we were in France. But because he didn't speak any French, he had to pick grapes. That's hard work. And I got to work in the cellar, you know, get in my bathing suit, swim around in the open top fermenters and mix them all up. And it was a lot better life, I guarantee you.
1: How did you and Adam meet?
2: We met at Zaka Mesa.
1: Okay.
2: He came in he came in, in, in 79, a year after me, and he came in to do the lab work because I was doing the lab work. In '77 and '78, and I just hate being inside doing lab work. Mm-hmm. My niece is doing it right now, and she—I don't want her to hear me say that. I'll try to be quiet about that. But, uh, uh, so, so I was really happy when he joined the team,
0: yeah. and
2: uh, and I got to get into more of an advisory, assistant winemaker kind of position. Ken Brown was the winemaker at that time, and my best friend for a year. But unfortunately, I stayed there for three years. So. <laughs>
1: You know, I really love...
2: You can use your very capable analytical skills to figure out what that one means.
1: I do love, I will say about you and Adam Tolmak, when you say, I'm really proud of the fact that we're good friends. I think that that is such a good thing to be proud of. What an amazing testament to, you know, a difference of opinion being worked out and remaining colleagues and having a successful parallel work life. I think is just totally to be celebrated
2: and, and if I could tell you how many, the big problem, as you well know, as we all know, is that when there's no money, it's very easy to be good friends. Mm-hmm. And then when there's money, it's very hard to distribute it. It's very hard to figure out compensations. It's very hard to, to uh, have two people equally devoted and dedicated to making the company successful. And so it's very hard to justify the compensation that they're going to get. And I've told that to so many partnerships. And, I mean, I don't know a single partnership that survives. You know, some of our closest partnerships of friends in the area won't talk to each other now. And Adam and I kind of got into that, that same situation. And the only one uh, that I'll mention just because I want to mention it yeah. is uh, the uh, – the boys from, uh, Saints Dick Ward and David Graves. And they had their ups and downs, but they always stayed as partners. And just by total happenstance, I was doing a tasting and a panel that David Graves was, uh, on with me. And, uh, and I said, where are you going afterwards, man? You want to go go and have a bite? And he goes, going to the hospital. My partner of 25 years is dying right now, probably going to die today. And I was just totally blown away because I hadn't heard anything about it. And I finally, as he's walking away, I gave him a hug and I said, David, you're the only partnership that I know that has owned and operated a company for 25 years and cared for each other as much as you guys have. And now it's going to end. But he died that day.
1: Yeah. That's such a wonderful I'm so glad you could call that up, that partnership up, because I don't know many either that work. Um but when gosh, when those rare ones do, that is amazing. That's an amazing testament. Um, let me and it's,
2: and it's and it's tough. Yeah. It wasn't like they had a roadmap to, to be successful. You know, the all all the money came from from Dick's uh uh first wife's father.
0: Hmm. And
2: then he divorced her and then all of a sudden it was like just trying to keep the company going was really tough and I'm sure if Graves had any influence on Ward he would have said don't divorce her that's where all the money's coming from but uh, you know they they built a great business and they worked really hard on it and uh, that was kind of a big exercise in reality for me you know you can be doing everything right you can be as happy as happy can be and The rug can be pulled out from underneath you whenever I think we're kind of living that right now, Jamie.
1: I think you're right, Jamie. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're absolutely right. Wake up. This is we were so flush, weren't we? We were flush with cash. Things were going great. But uh, but normal is not normal anymore.
2: And again, normal is maybe not achievable. Anymore in the future, you know, mm. my, uh, one of, one of our key financial employees came down and she was so thrilled. And, uh, she, uh, she told me that we'd gotten four POs today and the four POs added up to just about a pallet and a half mm. of, uh, our cheapest wine. Mm. And I laughed and, and I said, well, you, you know, that this month we're going to be, uh, between half and, and uh, three quarters of a million dollars short in sales compared to last year, this month, at that time. And she goes, oh, I, I know, I'm very aware of that. And I'm going, but thank you for your optimism for coming in and, and telling me we've gotten four POs because you know, we're, we're not getting that. And it's amazing. You know, we're, people still have no idea where the economy's going, and, and they think that you know restaurants are gonna be full even even though there's 25% capacity only allowed or going to be allowed in California. And, you know, it's just going to be so slow to turn around. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think you're right. Um, yeah. And I don't know what to say about that because I don't want to be too negative. Um, but I also don't want to be overly optimistic either. And I'm certainly in no position to be either, but um, yeah, I mean, you and I both have a lot of friends whose lives have changed pretty dramatic dramatically. Um, Absolutely. well, let me ask you, um, gosh, just, uh, there's so much more to ask and you have so many good stories I know, but I, I guess something that's important to me is why did you choose Santa Maria? Santa Maria is very close to my heart. I grew up in Napomo, and Get out of here. no, I did. Um,
0: Jamie from Napomo, <laughs> I think I heard about you, <laughs>
1: um, but why, wh- I mean, why it's such a beautiful valley. And I can see why somebody would choose it, but why did you choose it to start Au bon Clement?
2: Well, you know, after, after working at Zaca Mesa and going to France, it became really apparent that the, the fundamental analysis of the grapes that we were working with at Zaca Mesa down, down in the San Inez Valley uh, had nothing to do with the, uh, the analysis of the grapes from Burgundy.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: I'd heard a lot about the Santa Maria Valley. One of my colleagues, Tony Austin, who was at... Uh, at Firestone back in the day, uh, had made a couple of experimental wines from vineyards up in the Santa Maria Valley, and he didn't put them through Malolactic. He he didn't make wine the way I was going to make wine when I came back from working in Burgundy. But I tasted the wine, and I said, there's something here. There's something here that's totally different than Firestone, where he had worked, or Zaka Mesa, where I had worked. And I didn't have a lot of time to... Figure anything out. I had a bunch of people that were proposing wineries to me, and they were really great deals. If I work like a dog, sweat full time, they'll give me five percent of uh, what my company makes, and they're just putting the money up in front. And so, instead, Adam and I got together and raised the monstrous sum of uh, figure this out for for crowdfunding. Uh, sum of fifty thousand dollars to start our company in 82. We rented a uh, dairy barn in Los Alamos, which isn't even the Santa Maria Valley, but close enough. And we began to buy fruit in the Santa Maria Valley too. But be all and end all is we picked our own grapes from uh, Los Alamos vineyards. We made 1600 cases of wine. And uh, it was hardly an auspicious debut. I would say that now after developing that company for 40 years, that I'm still just about to be an overnight success, I'm sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hard to encapsulate somebody's life who's lived such a big and full life as you have. I mean, we're not even touching on how much success you've had and leading up to now and the business decisions you've made in the past, say, decade or 15 years. But you have... Had a lot of accolades, I mean, beginning all the way back with the l a times um, and Parker, so I mean what can you think of one that's meant the most to you
2: well yeah only and i'm only and I'm only saying it because I totally didn't expect it in um, two thousand and four. My, uh, I, I got a phone call from a uh, very famous German wine magazine, and they said that I was nominated to be the, uh, winemaker of the world. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I hear this kind of thing more or less often. And I mean, not super often, but I mean, there's, and it's just like, you know, in England, they want me to come and pick up my trophy for, for winning the, uh, best Pinot Noir of, uh, of the year in the World Wine Challenge in London. And, you know, it's a little plastic thing that they're giving me and, you know, some laminated plastic stuff. And, you know, uh, the, the wine that won was the Santa Maria Pinot Noir, my cheapest Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. That was the first year I made Isabel. That might have been the best Pinot Noir of the year in the new world, mm-hmm. no question, but Always getting it for that. And, and you get kind of look and you're scratching your head. The last couple of years we won uh, the International Wine Challenge put on by people in, in um, New Zealand and in Australia for the best white wine that's not Chardonnay. And once again, it's the same thing. You know, they give you a choice. You'll love this. They give you a choice of paying for your own airplane ticket and coming over, paying to visit the conference and donating six cases of wine uh, or they'll buy six cases of wine from me so they can show it to all the people they have there and I can't be there and I'm going the that's
1: this really tough. Out? Yeah, know? right. I can
2: I can I can go down twenty thousand dollars or I can just have you buy some wine for me and, and, and you can give me, you know, a thousand or twelve hundred bucks. And so it's kind of that way. So these Germans invited me and I was a little bit but they said we won't nominate you unless you're going to come. And uh, it was in a massive castle in Germany, not too far from the capital, and called Schloss Bensberg. Schloss Bensberg was such a nice place that when uh, the Brits, the French, and the Americans won the war, the Brits took the castle and said, this is our new headquarters. <laughs> By this time, it had three, three-star <laughs> restaurants in the building, and it was, it was pretty great, and beautiful rooms. They gave me a room, and, uh, but the people nominated were Paula DeMarchi, a very good friend of mine from uh, easily, Lena, down in Tuscany. P D Dagano, fortunately uh, dead, but very close friend. I had three of my daughter's first five Christmases we had at Dageno's
0: mm-hmm. in
2: um, the Loire Valley in Santa Elena. Peter Sisick from uh, Pingus in Spain, most expensive Dan- Danish guy, the most expensive red wine from Spain for years, even more than Vegas Sicilia for a long time. Willie uh, Meyer me. This was a serious group of winemakers and then the American guy. And when I came in and they uh, they announced that they were going to present they had given away a bunch of other awards, but they're going to prevent, present the trophy for the best winemaker in the world. And the uh, people that went on stage uh, to make the presentation were my barrel salespeople from Burgundy, oh. Jean-Noël Francois. And so once they were on stage, there was no question who was going to get it. And it had been uh, Dominique Laffont who was supposed to come up at the last minute. He had to cancel, so the Francois came from. From burgundy to germany and i want you to know there's still not a lot of love lost between the germans and the
0: french yeah, right
2: <laughs> better than the british or the british and the germans for sure anyway and so that was something that i just totally didn't expect i mean i totally expected i was going to show up and clap nicely for the for the person that won but against that level of uh, of competition and i have to tell you that not a person in america Gave a rat's ass about it. You know, I'm kind of going, Do you understand that, uh, how important this is? It's just kind of like, I mean, like it wasn't the Wine Spectator, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think all I have time for is to ask you about that final meal. What would that be?
2: I'll tell you really quickly because I prepared it. Okay. I'm reading currently out of line Barbara Lynch's uh, biography. Barbara's a chef from Boston. She's a really good friend and been a strong supporter, along with Kat Solari, her sommelier and uh and i'm reading uh, joe Bastianich's uh, restaurant man and you know both of them i'm not racing through because i'm finding myself watching old basketball games since mm-hmm. there's no current sports being played and i'm a current sports crazed person mm-hmm. and uh, i'm listening to uh, only old music that's mm-hmm. all that i like but recently i've been hearing covers of neil young songs done by eight-year-old Indian girls. And uh, I mean, it's all pretty pretty incredible. And I'm a, I'm David Bowie crazy. And when David, uh, when he passed, uh, he became the top of my playlist all along. And Crosby, Sills, and Ash, because Crosby lives in the area, besides Crosby, Sills, Nash, and Young, lives in the area. My daughter went to uh, middle school and elementary school with his son, and my last meal, White truffles on white truffles on white truffles. Mm-hmm. I just came back from uh, a trip in the, the Piedmont. We, we went for truffle season. Four of us, and we ate so well and was so wonderful. And you know, my life has been so blessed that uh, Adam Tomac and myself and my first wife in 1981 uh, went to uh, after we, we worked in after Adam and I worked in Burgundy. We went to the Piedmont, and we'd never heard of white truffles. We sat down for a meal in the uh, uh, the hotel in the town of Barolo that's run by a winemaker. And he had a restaurant. We had beef braised in Barolo, wonderful food, but nothing memorable on any level except for white truffles on, uh, on fettuccine. And Adam was always like a monk. He never spent anything never took care of himself, wouldn't ever have cared about having a uh, new suit of clothes or anything going on, but uh, he had the first plate of white truffles, and we're getting our beef, and we delivered, and he goes, I don't want that. I want another plate of white truffles, Aww. and I'm thinking it was the smartest move that uh, that he ever made, and they're just so wonderful, and what, what, what I'm drinking. Yes. My nebbiolo is not as good as it ought to be, though I think it's best in the new world. So I would be drinking something from Elio Altare or from uh, one of the Conterno family members or Luciano Sandrone. uh, I'd be just happy as I could be, even if I didn't know it was my last meal. But if I did know, you got to cram it in at some point, that's
0: for sure.
1: (laughs) Oh, Jim, thank you so much for... Taking time to tell me about all this. I know it's a sensitive time to be, I don't know. I, I don't ever want to seem uh, like I'm not cognizant of what's going on in people's lives with all of this. And you telling me the story about the palate and, the half, and a half of your cheapest wine is not lost on me. But I do appreciate you talking about good things with me.
2: Thank you, Jamie. And, you, you know, you make it really easy. Oh, good. You're patient when I talk too much. And you don't interrupt.
1: Next time we meet at my house or at your winery, okay?
2: That would be great. Come to the winery anytime. Thank you. Especially when things clean up. Um, I cook lunch when I'm here. and, uh, And so we open some older bottles and have a lot of fun.
1: I'm in for that. Thanks, Jamie. Thank you, Jim. Thanks so much for listening to Consumed, as always. I'm so glad you joined me. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. If you want to get all kinds of tidbits like recipes, updates on guests, and new seasons, join the Consumed mailing list at letsgetconsumed.com or follow me on Instagram at J-A-I-M-E-C-L-E-W-I-S. Until next season, wear your mask, wash your hands, cook dinner, send letters to your loved ones, support your local purveyors, and make a budget for takeout. Every little bit helps.